I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to have a word with, with my friend Brandy. So will you pray with me? Father, um, we come to you today, and we ask, um, Lord, we just ask for you to change us. Um, my friend backstage just prayed that. Lord, change us. We want to walk out of here different than we came in, God, whatever that looks like. Um, I thank you that these women are here, and they're hungry and excited and willing to open the word of God and hear what you have to say. Um, Father, today, change us. May we all walk out different. Thank you for my friend Brandy. Thank you for all my friends that are here today and for those that are listening online who couldn't quite get here, Lord. Will you just give them some space? Give them space this week, some margin to understand and to breathe and to know you in a deeper way. Thank you for your son, and thank you for this place that gives us the opportunity to open the word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, come on in. It's always that weird thing, right? Whenever somebody's praying and you're walking and you stop and you walk, and I know, I got it. It's just a good thing. It's all right. Glad you're here. Hey, um, I'm excited because my friend Brandy is here. This is kind of a cool thing. Well, I'll let you tell them. Brandy has a small group that she's doing this Bible study too, but they do it on a different time and they're a couple weeks behind us. So we tell them about your group. Yes. So Dawn, because she loves so well, um, invited all of the staff, females, and the wives, and the elders um, to come to, or the elders' wives, not the elders, that'd be weird, um, to have Bible study together Tuesday after we have our staff meeting. And so it's just a, a really sweet, sweet time. I mean, we love each other. We love serving together on staff. But there's just something super sweet about being able to dive into the Word together. And so she gave us that opportunity. So, yeah, we are a couple weeks behind. Yeah. So you guys are way ahead. So yes. there. But I did ask her. I, like, had this moment of panic. I'm like, you're, like, two or three weeks behind. Are you going to do homework from this week or, like, a couple weeks ago? She promised me she did this week. So she jumped ahead just for us. Yes. So that's really good. Um, tell us a little bit about your background with soap. Have you done it before? When did you first find it? Is this new to you? Okay. Well, it's not new to me. Um, my oldest, who is 22 now, when she was in sixth grade, um, she came to me and she said, Mom, I don't, I don't hear God like you hear him. And I just told her, I said, sweetie, the, the way I hear him is I know what he sounds like because I study his word. And so I was searching for ways to help her understand how to study his word, and I came across the SOAP method. And so um, I still without thinking, use the SOAP method pretty much whenever I'm studying the scripture. And so it's just something that's kind of stayed with me. And I've taught other people, you know, younger people especially, you know, to use this method because it can be intimidating. So, yeah, I love SOAP. I love it. I love it because it's four questions. I say that every week, don't I? I'm like, guys, it's just four questions. Like, how cool is that? Um, Tell us which day of homework you're going to do, what scripture okay. that was, and then what the title is. Okay, so I chose day five. Did anybody else, like, love day five? I just, I loved day five. I just stayed there. And so Ephesians 40, 30 through 32, and I titled mine, like, it just, like, leapt off the page to me, but I called it the heart's litmus test, so. Awesome. Okay, so what scripture did you write down for this week? I pulled from the message, um, just listen to this. So it says, do not grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit Moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Quickly and thoroughly, mm -hmm. quickly and thoroughly. Mm -hmm. um, observation, what'd you put Okay, so to me it was four very key things that came from the message version. It was just the overwhelming thought of, of the Holy Spirit moving and breathing very active in my life. And so as you continue down, it's the most intimate part of your life. And he's making you fit for himself. And that's just so very, very personal. And then not taking such a gift for granted. Um, and so I, I just I thought for a moment and I asked myself the question, how am I doing? Um, are the words of my mouth, and I put in parentheses, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks or the fingers type, hmm. <laughs> and the meditation of my heart, are they breaking his heart? 
um, are they drawing others to you, Lord? And so it was just very much, that was the, that's the point that I thought, this is a litmus test for my heart, is how, how am I doing? So, oh, goodness. Application, what was the things that you are going to apply from what you've learned on this day? Um, so it's, it's the questions I asked was, how, how do I keep from grieving God? How do I keep myself from breaking his heart? How do I keep from taking him from, for granted? And, um, you know, make a clean break. That's cold turkey. That's not like thinking about it. But if you're identifying, you know, Brandy, if you're identifying these things in your life, then you need to make a break now. Like it's not think about it. Um, be gentle and sensitive to one another. We need so much more of that in today's world. And forgive, and it wasn't just forgive, but quickly and thoroughly. And I looked up forgive the use in that instance, and it said to bestow a favor unconditionally. So unconditionally do this, but do it quickly and do it thoroughly. And so as I was writing that, I just had this mental image of this scripture as a transparency laying it over my life um, and looking at my posts, my snaps, my tweets, my emails, my conversations. How am I doing? You know, what does that really look like? And when you read the words, don't break his heart, boy, doesn't that give you just a whole different lens to kind of look through. So it's a lot. Gosh, I love that. I love the idea of putting it over like a filter, like a transparency that sets on top of everything. Yeah. Um, prayer. Would you pray your oh, prayer for I us? I would love to pray my prayer. And so I just want you to know, um, as I wrote this prayer, I truly had um, the Tuesday evening group. I had the Wednesday morning group in mind. I had myself in mind. And so I wrote this not just for me, but I wrote it for all of us. And so let me just pray my prayer over all of you. <clears throat> Father, I pray that we desperately desire not to break your heart, that our minds would be set on the moving, breathing Holy Spirit that you left for us as a gift. Do not let us take such a gift for granted. Help us. Apart from you, we are unable to make that clean break on our own. Whatever it is, cutting, backbiting, profane talk, deliver us, Lord. Bring our grievous behavior to the forefront so we can truly, truly repent, turning away. And just as you are quick and thorough in your forgiveness toward me, may I do the same unto others. Father, I want to be made fit for you. I want others to see you in that work. Amen. Amen. Thank my friend Brandy. Thanks You're for being welcome. here. You Tell your group we love them, but we're ahead of them, so we win. No, this, forget that part. Cody, strike that. Strike that part. <clears throat> I'm so glad she came. I, I didn't even know. I want y'all to know for like the first couple weeks that they were meeting, it was like this secret covert operation. Like I didn't even know. And then one day somebody walked up to me in the hall, and I'm like, "Oh, are you in the class?" She goes, "No, we have a secret group." And so I thought that was kind of cool. Hmm. A secret group. Um, open with me in your Bibles to um, Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at the same passages that you guys did in homework, the same passages you talked about in your group, verses, four, uh, excuse me, verses 17 through 32 today. We're going to take a look. We're going to continue on with Paul and his um, super awesome prescription for how to live out the, the three chapters of truth that we learned at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, if you'll remember. <clears throat> Last week, he talked about our walk. Remember the word walk? And all that means, every time you see it, because we're going to see it again today, and you're going to continue to see it as we go through, all that means is how you're conducting your life, okay? When you see that word walk, how we conduct our lives. He talked about how we get to build our walk on the wealth of knowledge that is Jesus Christ and what he did for us, amen? All those first three chapters of Ephesians. He then, he then walked us through the whole idea of unity, right? He continues to build the idea of unity and that unity is not sameness, but rather it's diversity, that we all have different gifts, we all have different backgrounds, we all have different parts that come together as the body of Christ. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to take all those things he said, he's going to give us another therefore-ish kind of term. He's basically going to say, now... This, I say, and he's going to move us into some commands. Essentially, these exhortations, like he's going to get really specific with us about some sin that we need to face, some sin that we need to change, some things we need to put off, some things we need to put on, right? And then how to live that way. Um, so take a look with me on, in chapter 17. There's three things, like I, I kind of mentioned, that we're going to cover. We're going to look at how he breaks it down into this. He first gives us um, that we're going to put off the old. 
And then we're going to put on the new. But this is what I love about Paul. He doesn't just leave us hanging there, right? He says, not only are you going to put off the old stuff and you're going to put on the new stuff, but you're going to put away the old stuff, man. You're going to take the old stuff and replace it and start all over, and you're going to live differently. And so he's got something to say to us. He's got something to say to the um, listeners from, from Ephesus. So let's hear what that is. Um, in, your, in your books... You guys, when you opened up that first lesson, that lesson, lesson seven, I told a really cool story tonight about a kiddo named Elliot. Did you read that? I've had that too, he said. I love that. You know, this is what I thought of immediately whenever I, when I got to hear that story from Elliot, which, by the way, I would like to share with you also. I got to see Elliot in person afterward. I had um, submitted that story to him for review and correction, and he approved all of it, except I spelled his name wrong. And so I corrected that. That's new and different. But he read it, and he looked at it, and he's like, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. And I'm looking at this kid, and the thing that kept coming to me when I'm talking to him is practical faith. This kid is already living this life of practical faith. All the things that he learns at church and from his parents and and the things that he knows of God, he's choosing to live those things out. And so as we see Paul, he's trying to tell us the same thing. He's saying, hey, guys, you believe all this stuff. Don't just close the book and put it on a shelf. Now we go live it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Putting off, putting off old clothes. He uses um, the metaphor, the put off, put on. He's giving us a metaphor for actually putting on clothes. And Paul does this a lot of times in all of his letters. You'll see many of his letters, he'll kind of use this same metaphor. Because why? Because it makes sense to us, right? We all put off and put on, and, and it's clear. And so I, I have really great news for all of you. I brought a show and tell. And so if you're listening online and you can't see, well, sorry, too bad, you should have come. No, I'm... I'll take a picture, but okay. Are you ready? <laughs> Some people in this room who've known me 30 years or so will probably know what this is because you've probably seen me wearing it. Let me share with you what this is and try to describe it as best I can with words. This is my favorite item of clothing. <laughs> You're really welcome that I didn't wear it today because I'm not going to lie, considered it. It's my sweatshirt, and you can see I've actually done, obviously done some painting in it, apparently. This is the problem. There's a hole here. It's a little, I have to wear things underneath it now. But I want you to notice this, this sweatshirt has really good ventilation. It's got it's an elbow hole. And as somewhere along the line, I trimmed the, the sleeves because they were just so constricting. And so now they're kind of torn and falling apart. And if you could get a close look, afterward, you're welcome to come up and take a look if you'd like. Um, if you look real closely, it's like there's holes already kind of digging their way through the fabric. So it, it's, it's been well-worn and loved. Um, this sweater was given to me by my boyfriend in high school like 33 years ago. So, yeah, he's still my boyfriend today. Um, but I wanted to share this because as I'm looking at Paul's uh, description about old clothes and putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes, I immediately thought about my red champion sweatshirt because don't we all? But do you have that thing? Do you have that thing that I, and then I thought, okay, Chris, when do I wear my old sweatshirt? Because it doesn't come out all the time. Let me just say it's just special. Um, but you know when it comes out? I, th- I thought about this, and this is for real. This is no lie. It comes out when, when I'm sick or when I'm really, really tired and I just need rest. It comes out when, um, when I'm suffering, when I just want to lay around and hang out and do nothing and see no one and talk to no one. It comes out when I need sleep, when I need rest. It comes out when I'm really scared. When things are scary, I will put on my sweats and put on that sweatshirt, and you will find me hunkered down. So just PSA, if you see me at Kroger in that sweatshirt, you should run because I might be sick and it might be contagious. <laughs> but really, you know why I thought, why, do, why are those the circumstances? Why have I not whipped that thing out and just worn it out and, and hang it out? And you know why? Because it's comfortable. Because I know how that feels. It's really comfortable. It fits just right. And and I always know what I'm going to get when I wear it. And there are things in our lives, and I think Paul is laying this out for us in this way because he's trying to explain to to the, the, the church at Ephesus. He's telling them this. You have this old, comfortable way that you've always done things. And now I'm telling you, you got to put it away. you got to put it off. And you got to do things a new way you got to quit wearing the same old ratty sweatshirt just because this is what you know that's not good enough anymore because now we know Jesus. He talks about in the first three verses, verses, excuse me, first two verses, verses 17 through 19, 
He lays it out right off the front. He says, he says this. Follow along with me if you have your Bible. In verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you may no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So right there he's saying, and I'm going to clarify a couple of things for you. Right there he's telling us, hey, you don't get to do what you always did. Because that's not how we live anymore. When he uses that phrase there that says, in the Lord, it means he's speaking with the authority of Jesus. Okay? That's an important little prepositional phrase. And then he goes in to say that we must no longer walk. We know what a walk is. That's how you conduct yourself. Right? How you conduct your life. But then the phrase that's very interesting is he says, as the Gentiles do. As the Gentiles do. Now, remember, when you're looking at this, you got to remember the audience, who wrote it, what's happening, all that, all that, right? So he's writing to this church who, who are comprised of Gentiles, who are comprised of Jews who have been converted to believe and be Christians, okay? So they have a history, but right here he's talking about we will no longer live as the Gentiles do. He's not specifically meaning geographically or even genealogically here. What he's trying to say is he's using that term Gentiles as, as um, in opposition to Christianity. He's trying to do a compare contrast and say, this is the pagan way. And when you see the word pagan, sometimes you'll see stuff, you know, pop up and people talk about pagan. All that is is in opposition to Christianity. It's in opposition to everything we believe through Jesus is the pagan way. So when he says Gentile, that's what he's talking about. He's not just cutting on some people. He's saying the way of life that is in opposition to Christianity, Okay. So that's verse 17. Continuing on, he says, As the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We'll come back to that. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the pagan way. He describes it. Now, interestingly, he's, he's giving them a description. This is as the Gentiles do, and he uses a couple of different terms that you guys covered in your homework and talked about, and I'm going to try to clarify a couple things for you. First, in verse 17, that term, the futility of the mind, the futility of the mind. What Paul's trying to help us understand here is that they are intellectually unproductive, okay? Intellectually unproductive when it comes to spiritual and moral issues. He's, he's saying, in, well, in the message it, goes, it says that they're empty and mindless. In the living, New Living it says that they're blinded and confused. In the NIRV it says their thoughts don't have purpose. That's the Gentile pagan way. Verse 18, he says they're alienated. Right here, this is a heavy one. This is heavy. He's saying they are spiritually separated from God. Now, we know this as believers in Jesus Christ. They know this as believers in Jesus Christ, but they always kind of probably go back to their comfy sweatshirt, right? And he's reminding them of some hard truths. He's saying, if you don't know Jesus, then you're separated from God. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. He goes on in 18, and he says, they're darkened in understanding, and he uses a term that we're going to see again in a few minutes, hardness of heart, hardness of heart. If you looked that up in your optional homework stuff, if you looked up the Greek, you, you found a word called porosis. And that word, it kind of calls back to an idea of a, of a type of stone, a marble, a type of hard, durable stone. And then he, he calls in the, the medical um, analogy as well, and he says calloused, which is basically like bony formations on joints or, or, or things that are just so built up and so strong that they can't be broken down. Hardness of heart. Verse 19, he says that the pagan way, that they're morally insensitive. They're morally insensitive. It says, and this, this, this is crazy. He says they've given themselves up. Do you see that in verse um, 19, I believe it is? He says they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Think of this. When he's saying given themselves up, it may not have been like this, this decision that somebody made to be like, I'm going to do all the wrong things and I'm going to do it now loud and proud. Maybe it was subtle movements. Maybe some of these people that are living in this way have just done things a certain way for so long that now they can't even see that there's anything wrong with it. Think about this. I, I, I use this analogy a lot whenever I'm thinking about um, how we gradually find ourselves falling away or falling into sinful behavior. Think about being in a, a kayak or a rowboat or a 
you know, whatever, okay, a canoe or something. Okay, so you get in, you launch the thing off the side of the water, right? You're on the shoreline. You get in the thing, you start rowing. Or if you're smart, you bring someone else to row for you, and you just sit and look cute. Anyway, you're rowing, you're going. You're into the middle of the lake. When you're into the middle of the lake and you look back at the shoreline, what do you see? What's happened to the trees? They've gotten really small, right? The farther you get away, the less impact these big, massive trees or structures have because the farther you get away, the harder it is to see. And so when I was thinking of this, I thought, they're morally insensitive. It's, it's as though they've become apathetic to things in this life that are sinful that draw them away. That's the Gentiles. That's the pagan way. They've had this loss of moral restraint. And he speaks here when he says sensuality, impurity, he's probably speaking specifically about sexual sin. Here's the thing. Anytime you see that come up in the Bible, I want you to know this. The reason the author can use that as an example is because that is one of those sins that is only focused on me. It's only centered around me. What's good for me? And so he's making a point here that they are reckless and they've given themselves over to a sinful nature. Sound great? Doesn't sound great, does it? Well, the thing that Paul has done is he's actually laid out kind of a progression. And it goes like this. The hardened heart leads to the darkness, which leads to death and judgment, separation from God, which leads to reckless behavior. It's a pattern. Well, we all sit here, right, and we sip our lattes, and we're like, yeah, that's too bad for them. I'm so glad I'm not them. Well, hey, guess what? I got good news. Not good news. Bad news. As believers, the readers of this letter and us, we're not immune. Do you realize that? Because here's the thing. I want to show you something. Go back up to verse 17. I want to show you a very interesting point about the tense of this, of this sentence. Paul says, now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk in the way of the Gentiles, that you must no longer walk this way. He doesn't say, hey, Chris, so remember back, way back when, when you used to walk like that? Like, those people are so bad. He says, you must no longer walk, meaning I know that you've accepted Jesus, and I fully understand that you believe this, but you're living with the red sweatshirt on and you're still living like them. And it is time you shut the door on that and put it off. That was convicting to me. Even believers have a strong indwelling disposition to do what we want rather than what God wants, rather than what God knows is best for us. In Isaiah chapter 53, it, the, the author says this, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. That's not different when you accept Jesus. You still have free will. And he's saying here, Paul is saying, he's imparting this knowledge to them, going, hey, guys, just because we have Jesus, he saved us, but we have to live like we believe it. Amen? Stop living like we're the pagans and the Gentiles in our sweatshirts. Our bent towards sin was not eradicated when we accepted Christ, but God made you a new person, created in righteousness and holiness. That's in verse 24. We're getting to it. The power of the old way, the Gentile way, the pagan way, it's been broken. The power has been broken. However, we often put it back on because in times, sometimes we're suffering and sometimes we're really tired. Amen. Anybody get tired? This life makes me so tired. And, and sometimes we put back on what's comfortable because we know how to do it and it's easy and sometimes it feels good. And Paul is calling us on the mat and saying, no longer will you put that back on. We're going to put on new clothes. So in verse 20, he takes us that way. Verse 20 through 24, he's going to say, but that's not the way that you're going to live because you are different. And here's why. Follow along with me. Verse 20 goes like this. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, to put off the old self, the old sweatshirt, amen, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on this new self created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and holiness. We're going to put off this old way. We're going to put on this new way. So he takes us down this road, the new identity. Listen, I have, I have a confession to make. So, okay, so I got that when I was in high school. And so now I'm like 28 or so now. Waited for it. Waited for the laughter. Still waiting for it to cease? No. Well, this is funny. So this was a big player in my world when I was a little bit younger, like just a minute younger because I'm so young now. But when I graduated from college and I got my first job like at a real live office, like with real live other people that had real live jobs and stuff, I had my first day of work. And guess what I wore to my first day of work? I didn't wear my sweatshirt. I know. Everybody was like, what? You are crazy. No, I didn't. You know why I didn't? I went to Ross Dress for Less, and I bought myself a nice little pantsuit, and I wore pantyhose, and I had a a stacked heel, and I looked so professional. But this is the thing. I had a new identity, didn't I? I couldn't show up at my office in that sweatshirt. They would have seriously doubted hiring me, right? Old self, old identity, new self, new identity, put it on. I thought about um, my red sweatshirt and my first day of work, two different identities. I thought about soldiers when they come home, civilians when they're here, different identity, right? Think about prisoners, convicts who are behind bars wearing stripes and they're in chains and then when they're free, do you think they ever wear stripes again, ever again? Probably no. Different identities. And this is why we're different. And so Paul gives us here, he gives us three parallel figurative kind of expressions in verse 20. Go back up to verse 20, and we're going to talk about those three things. They're really parallel, but they're also a little slightly different. He says this, Paul knows what, okay, this is what he, 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 let me just put it this way. Paul knows what they know, okay? He knows that this church has been established He has pastored and shepherded them well from afar and come to visit them, remember? So he knows what they've been taught. He knows what he is saying they have heard. Sometimes some things get said that we maybe hear, but we probably don't listen to. Anybody? Like maybe happening right now, you may be like, she is just like Charlie Brown's mom. Wah, 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 wah. It's okay. God will make it clear when he needs to make it clear. But this is what Paul's saying is, I know what I know. I know what you know. I'm going to remind you. He says three things, three figurative expressions about Jesus here. He says, number one in verse 20, he says that you have learned him. Did anybody think like there was a word missing? I was like, guys, we're missing something here. Learned him. Learned him, not learned about him. I can learn about any historical figure I want, Um, especially with the internet now, right? Like you can look up anything and learn about anybody that ever lived. But I can't really learn a person until I have a relationship with them. Do you see the difference? This is a relational language that Paul is using. He's intentionally using language that says, this isn't about learning about someone. This is learning someone. I have learned my kids. I have learned my husband. I didn't just learn about them. This term here, learned him, is only used here in in the entire Bible. It's never used anywhere else. It's Paul's reserving this idea that we're to learn him. And when he, when he says that, you know, think about this. It's re, he's relational, but he's also talking about, not only is he talking about um, having a relationship, but he's also talking about having a relationship with the one whom the entire Bible is about. Significant, not just a historical figure, changing eternity relationship learned him. The second thing he he gives us an example here in verse 21. He says, hearing about him. You have heard about him. That's Paul reminding them, listen, I know what you've heard. I know what you've been taught. Hearing about him. In the original Greek, however, that preposition doesn't exist. Isn't that weird? That, That about comes out. It's hearing him. Well, I can understand how translations would, would add it back in because it's like, well, Jesus is not, no longer walking on the earth at the time of this letter being written, so he obviously wasn't out there speaking in front of people, right? He's already gone up to be at the right hand of God. What does this even mean, hearing him? Well, Paul is referring here to sound biblical teaching. In other words, if you are, this, this blew my mind. This was like one of my big moments this week, okay? If you are reading this, you're hearing the voice of Jesus Christ. He's helping them understand, guys, this isn't just a bunch of people that got together and said, yeah, let's say this. This will be part of our club. We'll say it's the truth 
because of Jesus. It's true because of Jesus. He's teaching us through his word. We still hear his voice. False teaching was abounding at the time. Okay, I know we can't relate now because no way. That doesn't happen here, does it, ever? There were teachers out there, and this is what makes me crazy. Like, um, I've learned this the hard way, too. I I think... um, at the time, there were these teachers out there that, would, that, would, that were trying to take the flock of Jesus' followers, and they were trying to kind of lead them astray and turn them this way a little bit and add some of their own little sprinkling of what they believed into what was true. And so you know what's the scariest part about false teachers? This is it. They use just enough truth to draw you in. They throw around the name of Jesus Christ just enough to get you to buy in. Well, if they're talking about Jesus, it's got to be true, right? No. How's the only way you know whether or not something is false or, or true? Is to hold it up to what you know is true. This is true. You don't have to doubt this. And so that's what he's trying to make them understand. Is you, you, when you hear the word of, of Jesus and when you hear the word of God and we get the opportunity to have it bound in it with a cute cover and read it, we're hearing the voice of Jesus. We're hearing truth. We can put that against teachers that we question and we'll know if they're false so abounding in false teaching right now and so he wants them to understand they need to hear his voice the third expression he gives is in verse 22 and he says you were taught in him you were taught in him funny thing about this one section is he actually says here he says you were taught in jesus he says You were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Interesting. This is the only place that Paul uses Jesus' human name. Do you know that? Every other place Paul says Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Christ being the term that is um, about his, his godship, about who he is in the Trinity. Jesus being his human name. He's sharing that he's a historical person. But he's also saying that the truth is in Jesus. You know what what blew my mind here? He's saying this. That the truth has fingernails and scarred hands. That's the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus the man, fully man, fully God. Don't miss Paul's intentionality here. The truth is in Jesus. He is relational. He is the teacher. And he is the truth. That's what Paul wants them to understand, to remind them, to remind us. Well, he goes on into verse 22 and 24, and he gives a very good comparison here of the difference between wearing the old, um, the old shirt, the old sweatshirt, and the new thing. He says in verse 22, he says the old clothes, that's your old identity, and that corresponds to your former life, and it's corrupted through desires, and it's based on deceit. That's the old way. Don't go back to the old way. Because then he says, guys, that's the old way, but here's the new way. Verse 24, you have a new identity. It corresponds directly with God, and you're created in righteousness and holiness, and it's based on truth. You don't, this is what I found so interesting about Paul. You don't just put away the old stuff, you got to put on the new stuff. Amen? Well, he goes on into the next um, section of the end of chapter 4, and he gives us some specific ways that we're to live in this new way, in this new identity. He tells us specifically that we're to change our roles, we change our dress, and he starts in verse 25 with the word, therefore. What do we ask when we see the word, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? Right. Sound biblical teaching here at Rock Point Church. Therefore. So he says all this stuff, therefore. Having put away falsehoods, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Let no sun, let, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And verse 30. Okay, wait, I got to pause. Verse 30, super weird place to put verse 30. Anybody else go like, hey, wait, we're kind of on a roll here. And then he says, throws this thing in. Okay, I love Paul. He's, I think he's mind just kind of squirrel 
I think he does that. Verse 30, he goes into this thing about the Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen, I'm pausing super fast. When he, when he gives us this little, this little snippet about the Holy Spirit, I want you to gather this piece of information because it feels like, although it was stuck in at a weird place, he needs us to understand this. He's telling us this, that we, can, we have the power to grieve the Holy Spirit. Will you just stop and think about it? You have the power to grieve God. Who wants that? He's saying the Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit has suffered sorrow, pain, distress, grief by anything unholy, anything incompatible with purity or unity hurts him. Any misuse of speech, any claiming or following untruth. I mean, this is a big, giant sentence that he's just crammed in here that I went right over and missed the first few times, and we can't miss it. He is saying, all these things that I'm talking to you about, all the old things, when you put on the old sweatshirt that's comfortable and it was good because you knew and you could do that, that grieves me. Verse 31, unpause. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, great list, right, by the way, be put away from you, along with malice. Don't forget that one. Verse 32, my favorite verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And this last part, I hope if you don't underline in your Bible, make today the day you start. Underline this. As God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. Put away the way you used to be, the way you used to live. And you're going to come over here and you're going to put on this new identity and you're going to live this way. He gives us, Paul spells out, which... Sometimes it's, I mean, it's a good list slash terrible, painful list. He gives us five sinful behaviors, very specific behaviors in this passage that we are to put off and to put on new behavior. But this is what's so cool about it. Did you guys see? He kind of uses this pattern. So like, it made me think about like how I parent and stuff, which, you know, I don't know. There's no going back on some of it. But the thing I love is that he doesn't just say, hey, don't do that. And then slam the door, does he? He says, don't do that do this. And when you do this, here's why you're going to do this, so that this happens. I love that beautiful picture over and over, all five times. Don't do this, do this, so that. Let no, but rather, so that. Over and over. And so let's take a look. Five sinful behaviors that none of us in this room probably deal with, but write down notes because you have people, right? No, it's, it's a little convicting. I won't look at your faces. Number one, He says in verse 25 that we're to replace lies with truth. We're to replace lies with truth. Um, He he uses the term here that we're members of one another. He's reminding them that, that they're united in Christ together. You know what I love about this? I love that he's saying, basically, this is the Chris version. He's saying this, um, you're no longer, um, Chris from Marcus high school class of 88. You're no longer Susie who grew up in Irving. You're no longer a Joey who is the mother of five kids. You're no longer um, Fred who is married to Susie. You don't have those identities. You know what your identity is? You are one in Jesus Christ and all the rest of it comes behind. Do we live that way? I don't live that way often. Oftentimes I identify myself in different ways and God is saying, excuse me, Paul is saying here that the Lord looks at us with one identity, and we are all one in that identity. And so don't miss that. When he says replace lies with truth, he's referencing the fact that we are all one, we are all in this together. Possibly in this situation, I'm just saying, I don't know anything. Maybe he's not talking when he talks about replacing lies with truth. Maybe he's not talking about those really big lies. Maybe he's not talking about the big giant ones that we're all sitting here tonight and going, well, I'm going to sit my latte. This is not my problem. I'm going to move on. Maybe he's talking about the lesser lies. Maybe he's talking about the little things that as we row out into the middle of the lake, we forget about. Anybody ever encountered this term before, gossip? Anybody? You can all raise your hands. Not that you do it. I thought about this. When I was looking at this, I thought, well, I don't gossip. First of all, number one, that was a lie, right? Amen? That was a lie straight up. But I did think about this. Um, as, I'm, as I'm 
in a group of people, and I, I, you know how you feel when somebody starts gossiping? You know that feeling you get? If you don't get the feeling, we've got another problem. We need to have a talk. But you get that weird feeling in your stomach, and you're like, this doesn't feel right. I just, I feel like this is not, I need to go, I need to pretend like I have to go to the bathroom. I'm just going to leave. Maybe, just maybe, um, he's saying here, hey, Chris, it's not so much about being the one that gossips and tells the lies. Maybe it's about the fact that you're standing there and you're not correcting it with truth. Maybe it's more about the fact that you're avoiding, you're running off to the bathroom so you don't have to deal with something rather than saying, you know what, that's, let's not do that because we don't know what truth is. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe I need to replace the lies in my life that I even just stand by and let happen with truth. He wants them to be known for truth. John Stott says this great quote slash super painful. The avoidance of lies is of little use without the active pursuit of truth. The avoidance of lies is of little use without the active pursuit of truth. Who are you known to be? Truth teller? I don't know. That was the first sinful behavior that Paul shares with us. The second is in verses 26 and 27. And he talks about replacing um, indifference with proper anger. Anybody? That is weird. Proper anger? What is that? Um, I don't even know how to explain this. I hope I can do a good job. But I did find this funny. If you look at verse 26, he starts out with two words. What are they? Be angry. Now, Really great example about how we are not to cherry-pick Scripture out and cross-stitch it on a pillow, okay? So just don't pick out those two words and be like, well, this is Scripture, so this is like true. Cross-stitch it on a pillow and give it to somebody for Christmas. Please don't do that. That's actually terrible. So, But I thought, what a weird way to start this this section. Be angry. Were y'all, did you have big circles with a question mark over your head too? Be angry? What are you talking about? You're telling us how to be good. Well, Consider this. Be angry. He's echoing Psalm 4-4 here. Um, he's actually telling them this. I kind of thought this was interesting. Don't be nothing. Don't be indifferent. Being angry. There, there are ways that you can be angry that are absolutely righteous. Amen? There are ways that we can be angry that are, that are really unrighteous. And I think a lot of times we play that game with, well, this is righteous anger because this person deserved it. And, you know, okay, let me, I'm going to try to give us a little, um, an idea of the ways that we can qualify how we're angry. Because Paul spells it out for us. He says this, he says, be angry, but then he qualifies it with three things, doesn't he? He doesn't just say be angry, period, cross-stitch this. He says, be angry, but don't what? Don't sin. Be angry, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. It may not have been a literal, I mean, you know, it's going to be okay if, if the sun goes down. But what he's trying to say is don't sulk. Don't nurse anger. Don't let it turn into embitterment. Be angry, but don't give opportunity to the enemy, doesn't he? Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give opportunity to the enemy. He knows, Paul knows this with all of us. Remember, we are, we are the Ephesians reading this too. You're in church. You're here reading the Bible. You, you probably understand that, that Jesus came and died for you. You probably claim to be a believer. I don't know. But if you do, you're reading this and going, well, okay, what does this even mean? Paul knows that with us, there's a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, and he's trying to clarify that. So how do we determine? How do we in Flower Mound, Texas, determine what, what is righteous anger? I don't even know what to do with this, Paul. Let me give you three things to ask yourself when you're thinking about anger. And I'm going to warn you, they're not easy. But three things to think about to determine if this is righteous or unrighteous. The first is this. Is it rooted in sin? Is your anger rooted in sin? Am I mad because I'm jealous or I want revenge? The second question is, is it focused on God's kingdom, his rights, or his concerns? Or is it focused on me? Is my anger focused on God's kingdom, rights, and concerns, or is it focused on me? And the last question is this. Is my anger expressed through godly character? Is my anger expressed through godly character? Is that even possible? I will tell you yes. Here's how it's possible. Can you be angry and also be patient? Can you be angry and also have self-control? Yeah. Is there godly character involved? 
If you want to see um, righteous anger in action, you flip over to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Some of you are nodding because you know what I'm going to say. Here's what was happening. I'll try to give it to you in a nutshell. Jesus was walking into the synagogue. He spotted a guy who was crippled. Jesus, um, the people said, we're going to see if he's going to heal him because it's Sabbath and we're just going to try to trick him. And Jesus says these words to the crowd. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? And they were silent because they knew the answer. And then Mark tells us that he looked around, Jesus, at them with anger and grieved at their hardened hearts. Have we heard that before? The pagans that have a hardened heart, he was angry and grieved. I love that, that, that even in this instance, Paul never calls us to do something that we can't do. He never calls us to do something that Jesus hasn't already done. Amen? We can do this. We can replace indifference with proper anger. He follows with the third sinful behavior that we're supposed to take and change and replace and do good. He says, replace selfishness with giving. Replace selfishness with giving. Now, this goes beyond don't steal. It says, instead, you're going to work hard, and then you're going to go change the world. Don't you love that? It's, it's, it's Paul telling us, let no but rather so that. John Piper says this about work, about the idea of work here. He says, there are three options regarding work. You know what they are? One is you can steal to get. Two is you can work to get. Or three, you can work to get in order that you give. That's what Paul's trying to say. Guys, this is less about following rules and more about changing hearts. Do we have a changed heart? The fourth thing he tells us about in verse 29 is he says, replace destructive speech with constructive speech. This is important for us to not miss. He's saying, don't just stop talking bad stuff. you got to replace it with the good stuff. Corrupt. The word there is actually a word that comes from um, the idea of rotten fish or rotten fruit. Awesome, right? Yay, rotten food. That's disgusting. But that's what he's saying. He's saying this. In, in other words, destructive speech, it doesn't nourish. It makes you sick and it reveals a corrupt heart. But you know what? I'm going to add the crisp part to it. You know what else it does? It's contagious. You know why? Think about this. Okay. Moldy fruit. Think about moldy fruit. Ready? No, have you ever bought a thing of strawberries and you open up the top and it's beautiful and you're like, this is the best strawberries ever. And they're all pretty and red. And then you pull one out and it's like the plague is on the bottom of it. And then you look and you're like, six more have the mold. And it's like, what is happening? That's what he's talking about. He's saying that you have this destructive speech. It doesn't just affect you guys. When you're destructive, it not only affects your heart, it not only makes you row farther out into the middle of the water and you don't see what matters anymore, but it affects other people. How do you want it to end? When you're speaking, when you're in the middle of something, you know, here's here's one thing. I, I know when I walk into situations where my mouth might cause me a problem it's often and usually what I'll pray is God give me a physical sign make physically make me know that I need to stop and he does sometimes I just get the stomach ache like oh I'm I should be quiet now how do you want it to end when you're speaking how do you want that to end um he, he he if you think of it this way when you talk about rotten speech I want you to hear some of the things that that I found that are that are difficult because to me I I, I do a lot of these and I didn't want to believe I did um rotten speech can include name calling sarcasm ridicule mockery gossip slander blaming destructive criticism angry words of threat revenge griping complaining lying that doesn't even include the obvious ones like profanity or filthy talk or dirty jokes. They're subtle, right? Destructive behaviors. And Paul's saying, you can't wear that anymore. You are different. You have learned Christ. It's time to be different. We're not just to hold our tongue. We're to replace the destructive words. And here's the thing. Not because the other person deserves it, but because God is gracious. Thus, we're to be gracious in our speech. Oh, that was big. The fifth thing he says, and I'm going to end with this, is he says that we're to replace improper anger with kindness. He gives us, in this one section, he gives us 31 through 32, he gives us six behaviors of improper anger, doesn't he? That's where it was the bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. And oh yeah, don't forget malice, all these things. 
Well, the, remember we talked before about righteous anger? Well, here we're talking about unrighteous anger. We're talking about the things that um, are basically selfish, sinful behaviors that show themselves in anger. And he's saying instead we're to replace it with kindness and forgiveness. Does that come naturally? It doesn't come naturally to me. Here's the thing. The critical truth that you have to understand when you see this last behavior, and, 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 and hear me when I say this, I understand that this is true, and God understands that this is true. Here it is. Critical truth here. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Anybody ever had to forgive somebody and it was easy? It's costly, right? Well, I want to end with this quote because it, it just kind of sums it up. The most powerful verse, in my opinion, in this entire section is the end of verse 32, and I said it earlier. God also forgave you in Christ. Here's what we need to understand. Forgiveness is costly. Tim Keller says this. Just listen to these words. Don't even write them down. I just want you to let it soak into your heart for a minute. God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient us are also costly for the giver from the earliest parts of the bible it is understood that god could not forgive without sacrifice no one who is seriously wronged can just forgive the perpetrator but when you forgive that means you absorb the loss and the debt you bear it yourself all forgiveness then is costly. Paul's not asking us to do anything that God didn't already do. Jesus came to this earth. God gave the greatest cost to forgive us. We are unworthy. Most likely, if you have lived a life like mine, most of the time, the people that I have to respond in kindness and forgiveness to are people that have never, number one, asked to be forgiven, and number two, are not easy to be kind to. Amen? Paul says, that's the old way. We're different. Jesus is relational. He is the teacher. He is the truth. Do we live in the comfortable old ways like we don't even know it? Or do we live like we really, really, really actually believe it? Paul's asking us. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that not only did you... You gave us a new way. You didn't just say, quit being that guy. You said, quit being that guy, but here's how I'm going to walk with you and help you be this guy. Because, Lord, um, through you, other people are going to see something in me and those of us in this room and say, I want to know more about that. Lord, may we be those people today. I pray that we walk out of here today and that we remember that we have learned him that you are more than just a historical figure, Lord, that you are a relationship and that you want to change us and that you come and dwell in our lives. And when we go back to the old way, you are grieved. Forgive us. God, um, I pray everyone in here today can think this week, Am I, is that my old way? Is this my new identity? Because I don't want to be the girl wearing the sweatshirt on my first day of work. Change us, God. Change us to walk in our new identity. Thank you for loving us enough to give us Paul's words that were to the Ephesians, but they were to us. Every word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.